Are you a pro athlete? If so, today's episode of Datages is right up your alley. And if you aren't a pro athlete, I encourage you to stick around too in order to learn from one of the great minds in sports psychology about what he has learned from working alongside some of the greats and how you can apply it to your life. Hello, Datages friends and family, and welcome back to Datages. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode and our continued focus on the Datage. Surround yourself with people who are better than you are at what they do best and let them do it. And I'm even more excited to welcome today's guest to Datages because he's certainly somebody better than I am at what he does best. Our guest today is a number one best-selling author of a dozen titles, a counselor, master life coach, international speaker, radio and TV host, and a minister whose mission is to positively affect 2 million people or more every day in every area of life, regardless of their current circumstances. Notably, today's guest is the author of a brand new book published August 18th, 2023, entitled Mental Mastery and Maximum Performance for Professional Athletes. Take your career and your life to the next level. I was fortunate enough to get an early copy and read it cover to cover. It's a great book, and we'll talk about how you can get your hands on it later in the episode. In the meantime, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the Datages Virtual Studio, David Essel. David, welcome to Datages. Oh my gosh, Chad, we have been waiting for a couple of weeks now, if not a couple of months to be on with you. And thank you for such a beautiful introduction. I'm glad to be a part of your podcast because we need more positivity and that's all you're about. So you've got a fan already in me, brother. <laughs> oh, I really appreciate that, David. It means so much. And, and David, we'll get into the book, but first I want to start with your mission, positively affect 2 million people or more every day. I love what Jim Collins, another author, has to refers to as BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. And it sounds like you definitely have one. Can you help us at Datages understand how you make something like that a reality? Yeah, it's really fascinating, Chad. For years, we used to always talk about, you know, financial goals as a business person, an entrepreneur of 43 years. I had business coaches and we would set goals to make every day, every week, every month, every year, you know, the, just the basic thing that entrepreneurs all have to learn in order to survive and thrive and grow your business. And, you know, we got to a point where one day I said it was a, a woman I'd worked with for a number of years, a phenomenal business coach. And, you know, I said, you know, I'm really getting burned out on, on checking numbers. I really am. I'm over it. You know, it's like, okay, we can continue to count dollars in and we can say, wow, we had a really horrendous month last month. And, and, but then this month we made up for it and we did great. I said, but let's throw this out. We need to come up with a new philosophy. And so over that next weekend, I started writing down, well, what can we substitute as a measuring device instead of money? You know, I mean, and, and I'm not attached to money. I, I love money, Chad. I think it's crucial, um, but it isn't something that I go out and have to have the, the next brand new pair of, of sneakers or shoes or, or whatever you know people do. And I'm not judging. I'm just saying that's my life. You know, and, and so what I want to do is I, I want this world to really understand the power that we have within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we can understand that power, we look at the challenge, like you mentioned my, my book, you know, in all of our books, we say the same thing that has been said for centuries, but it's so hard when you're in the middle of a challenge to feel it, you know, challenges are opportunities to grow. Absolutely. That Absolutely. Every challenge in the world, whether I'm working with a professional athlete or I'm working with an executive or a stay at home mom, you know, when we get that idea 
in that a challenge is the only way to grow. It really is the only way to grow the comfort zone. There is no growth. We know that. Absolutely. It's not that the comfort zones are bad. I mean, we should sit in a comfort zone and, and thank ourselves for being brilliant enough to get up every day and meditate or whatever it is that's a comfort zone for you. But then when I ask an entrepreneur or an athlete or a stay-at-home mom or dad or whatever, like, how do we turn what you're facing right now into something good? How do we change that terminology? And I want to say something, Chad, that's so important. It cannot be done only via your thoughts. Hmm. You will never change a belief of fear, insecurity, overwhelmed by your thinking alone. The brain is not capable because of something called the amygdala, which we could get into down the road. But, you know, you know that whole adage of dog chasing its tail? For so sure. someone is in anxiety, someone's in worry, someone's in all of those kind of things, you know? And so <clears throat> what we want to say is, okay, what is that thing that's creating anxiety, worry, overwhelm? And how do we look at that as something with potential good, even if we don't know what's on the other side of the mountain, you know, yeah. with potential good. Last thing I'm going to, I'm going to say, and I'm going to actually allow ladies and gentlemen, Chad to speak during his own podcast. It'll probably come up in a little while. So hang in there. You'll hear from your host, <laughs> but Alan Watts, one of the greatest Buddhist teachers ever has a quote that is so awesome. He says, all the anxiety in the world will never improve what you're currently facing. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. That. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you spoke about the disconnect sometimes between people's thoughts and their reality. It really has to come into action, as you said. And, you, and, and I love what you said about challenges. It's clear you have risen to the challenge multiple times over and not only grown and, and had growth opportunities for yourself, but brought those opportunities to others. I really want to now dive right in and let's get into the book because yeah. The, the book is fantastic and it really addresses some important topics uh, and things that have really become focal in our society today because we all look up, even if we're not a professional athlete, these people are our mentors, they're our role models, they're the people that we look up to and they're really starting to expose us to what their life is like and, yeah. and start to share what the impact is of the things that they face and how we should all uh, be willing, be able to process those things in our own life. So what you really focus on in the book is you're addressing the dual challenges of mental health and physical health that mm -hmm. according to ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine, more than 35% of elite athletes are grappling with these issues. Uh, what motivated you to tackle this complex issue and, and what unique insights can readers expect when they get their hands on mental mastery and maximum performance? Well, Chad, the very first thing that you said that I want to back up on is that when we wrote the book, it was really for professional athletes and high college elite athletes only. And what we found is we're getting all these everyday people that aren't athletes that are reading the book going, oh my God, I had no idea that Greg Louganis, the Olympic yeah. diver, went yeah. through this. You know, I had no idea that the heavyweight boxer Deontay Wilder is so involved in meditation and personal growth. You know, yeah. so we're having everyday people like me and you, non-professional athletes reading the book and going, oh my God, this is amazing. But, but one of the things I love about this is that if a person can get into their mind and let's say compare themselves with a Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson was out of basketball for a year, supposedly, after a major knee blowout. Just as he was about to come back, he blows out his Achilles tendon. This is a professional athlete that has everything on the line and is questioning, especially, can you imagine after the second injury where he's going to be out year number two now? Then we see that he came back. And if you ever want to Google any interviews with Clay Thompson, they're amazing. He gets emotional. He talks about how difficult it was and when he had a fear. He went into deep depression. 
isolation. He isolated himself. He did all of this. But why is this important for the everyday reader? Because when you go through those challenges and you come out the other side and you think of someone like that who was lost, depressed, confused, making millions of dollars a year, but still lost, confused, depressed, and he came out of it. Well, how did he come out of it? He came out of it by reaching out and asking for help. He yeah. knew he could never come back from the mental part of the rehab, Chad, as much as he could from the physical without help. You know, and, and a lot of the athlete stories we tell in the book are exactly that. So you mentioned a study that is crucial to me. And when you asked me, how did this all come together to write the book? You know, because I, uh, my sports psychology degree was in, uh, well, 1983, you know, so it's been a long time I've worked with athletes. Why would someone wait 40 years to write a book on this? And that study that you told is the reason why. When I saw the, the American College of Sports Medicine say that 35% of elite athletes have no control over anxiety, depression, eating disorders. Think about this. Eating and I, I could tell you a ton of athletes I've worked with with severe eating disorders. And then we have a PTSD, you know, and then we have a, a, a lack of confidence. We have individuals being traded and not knowing, you know, are they going to start? They were starting last year. Are they going to start yeah. here? Are they going to come off the bench? Right. So, so we, we, we wrote it because of that study. But here's the thing, Chad, in our private practice, we believe that number is super underreported for a very good reason, no even doubt. though it was an anonymous survey. And you know this because you're involved in sports. Man, athletes are petrified of having their owners, coaches, fans, etc., know that they're going through depression, they're going through a divorce, they're going through extreme addiction to alcohol or pot or the nightclub scene. You know, we have stories in the book of some of the athletes I've worked with saying on certain teams, you were pressured to go out and party after every game, you know. So that's a mental health challenge. That's yeah, peer pressure. It's such a tough environment. And there's so many pressures privately, publicly, within the team, outside the team. And then I think there are a lot of naysayers out there who just try to dismiss these things and say, yeah. oh, you're an athlete. You need to be tough. Or they just say, that's part of sports. Stop crying and get back on the field. Uh, yeah. You know, what do you say in response to people that might have that kind of perspective about these elite athletes? Well, a lot of those individuals have never gone through deep clinical depression. A lot of the people that are judging, <laughs> that are judging these athletes haven't experienced being apart from their loved ones 70% of a year. Let me yeah. just stop right there and think about that. You're in a relationship and you see your partner 30% of the year. Think about that. You know, that is, you're, 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 you have children and you see them 30 to 40 percent of the year. We have to get into away from, oh, they're making millions of dollars. They're crybabies. They're, no, there are crybabies in, in professional sports. There are whiners. There are babies. There are whatevers. Yeah. Uh, no names to be mentioned. No right, names right. necessary. Right? We all know who they are. We all, we surely do, you know, and as a matter of fact, Chad, in the book that you, that you read, you know, there's, because, you know, even though we talk about all sports, of course, you know, I have so much experience and love of the game of basketball, but I called out the NBA in the book during the freaking playoffs last year, they were doing these freeze frame shots of the stars of one of the teams in the playoff arguing with referees at one end of the court while their team is understaffed defensively now, mm. it's three against five on, on the defense defensive end because two of the stars and they freeze framed it and they showed the ball over half court and these individual now that to me is being a lack of a leader it's a lack of being a role model you're a freaking star on an NBA team you're making millions of years you know and and one of the things that I say in the book and I know that there's a lot of NBA fans that will not like to hear this and there's and the players will definitely not like to hear this but in major league baseball if you attempt to argue balls and strikes you're ejected right away you're yeah, gone yeah. the, the Empire stands there and says, 
oh, that was cute. You're gone. (laughs) The NBA needs to get some type of grip on this complaining after every call. You know, there was a team in the NBA playoffs last year that I will not mention because then I'll never get any uh, clients from them. (laughs) I would sit there with my partner. We're watching the games and we're going, are you kidding me? There isn't a play that someone isn't complaining, slowing the game down. And with these guys being role models for young kids, it's so terrible to have that as the example. Ken Honda, who's going to be a guest on on Dadages in the next few weeks, in his book, one of the things he talks about is exactly that, that one of the first and most prominent things that young children learn in school is to complain. And their biggest complaint is, that's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> and, it, and he said those, he, he immigrated from Japan and he said those were some of the first English words that his children learned from school are it's <laughs> oh not fair. Gosh. Being a role model, these athletes have to be held to, to a higher standard, I think in terms of their public behavior. But I think you've created a very clear distinction between how they're behaving on the court, the example they're portraying versus the private lives and the issues that they're contending with. And you really did a great job of outlining many of these things that uh, athletes have to contend with. And you know, I want to come back to the dadage for today's episode about surround yourself with people who are better at you are what they do best within the book provided not just problems, but some very actionable suggestions regarding the resources that athletes can bring into their lives to help them from a counselor to a therapist, a mental health coach, a sports psychology coach, a psychiatrist, mentor, you go on and on and on, even to specialty providers like meditation, acupuncture, massage, all of these alternative approaches. And it brings me back to the notion that I hear a lot in bringing up young kids in particular, which is it takes a village. It really does take a village to help these professional athletes go out and do what they do. Can you expand more for us on the resources that are available and how elite level athletes can tap into these things for for their benefit and to maintain the longevity and happiness of their career? Most of of the elite athletes, Chad, have what they'll call their guru with nutrition and their guru with physical training and their guru with mental mind mindset training and everything. You know, two people that come to mind right away, they're at the top of the list. A list is uh, Novak Djokovic and LeBron James. Um, you know, it's been claimed that LeBron has, you know, spends about $1.5 million a year on his self-care. Wow. That includes Pilates. That includes meditation. Mm-hmm. That includes cryotherapy. That includes a physical trainer. That includes a nutritionist. That includes a mind coach, you know. Novak Djokovic, same thing. I mean, there's this coolest story that we share about Novak because I never even knew this. My partner knew it. She she was way ahead of me. And um, but when he started his career, he started out like a ball of fire. And then he hit a massive wall and no one could figure out what that massive wall was. Now, this is for you and I, all of our listeners, as well as every athlete. When you hit a massive wall, you reach out for help. Yeah. You don't try to figure out this stuff on your own. Now, you can try to figure it out for 30 days or something like that. Go ahead. Google your answers to whatever you're challenged by, right? But eventually, if it's a big gig, you're going to have to ask for help. Novak ran into this individual who is an outrageously knowledgeable person in the world of nutrition. He he diagnosed right away that he had an extreme allergic reaction to dairy, gluten, wow. and all of these other things. When he made these very difficult switches in his diet, you know, going vegan from eating a, a quote unquote normal diet to vegan, no dairy, like, you know, everything organic is very difficult, like for anyone to do. And yet he says in our book, that change combined with his psychological spiritual work, which includes hugging trees, by the way, Chad, he hugs trees with his family. 
family. He's literally a tree his, hugger. He is a true tree hugger, and he admits it without any hesitation, right? And he talks about, you know, walking on earth through sand, through grass to ground ourselves. You know, the spiritual lives, and this is one of the things I really try to help all of my professional athletes with, is we need to add that spirituality. We need to add that leadership. And who is the best coach in the world that I've ever run into in regards to doing it at a professional level who won, I believe it was 13 NBA titles as a coach. If you have any idea who I'm talking about, he was an innovator. He still is. Coaches still are not catching up to how brilliant this freaking guy was. Listen, you win 13 freaking titles. Don't you think every coach in the world would be doing what that coach did? And we're talking about Phil Jackson, Jackson. Chicago and Los Angeles. He had them. I'm getting chills right now. You know, like one of my favorite books is by um, Marcus Aurelius, one of the most incredible writers and, and leaders in our time. And, you know, he was having them read medit- my favorite book by Marcus Aurelius is called Meditations. And it's just one thought after another coming from this amazing warrior and this incredible leader. Right. And so and so we have our athletes reading books like that, you know, going deep. And then Phil Jackson, again, you know, I'm still shocked, Chad, that the world hasn't caught up to Phil Jackson. But, you know, he had them jumping from a book on Buddhism to a book on like power versus force by Dr. David Hawkins, which is one of the most powerful books ever written on human consciousness. You know, so Phil Jackson was so far ahead and we put him in the book because we want athletes to know that this is a, this could be the crucial missing point that's going to take them from level B to level A to that top because that's mind control. That's emotional regulation. That's leadership, you know, and, and so the more you can be a leader, the more valuable you are to your team. Listen, uh, one of your sons is in college. When he gets to that next level, having a dad like you, he's going to know leadership skills probably a hell of a lot more than other 18 year olds, right? We want, you know, these younger athletes to be reading the same stuff. Kyrie Irving, very controversial NBA player, but one of the best NBA guards to ever walk on earth has a quote the other day, which blew my mind. He says, we need to encourage our children to understand and care for their own mental health. Absolutely. And and thank you for bringing up Thank you for bringing up my son, Brayden. You know, I'm obviously a very proud dad, both my boys, Brayden and Camden. And my son, Brayden, has been at Stanford now for eight weeks. And somebody asked me, well, how's he doing? This is a great segue into what I want to talk to you about next, because what I said in response to that, and I thought about it for a moment, I said, you know what? I've come to realize that my son, even eight weeks in, I can already tell he's going to be a better Stanford student than I was because he's a consumer. I've trained him to self-advocate. And it's one thing that I'm proud to take credit for as a father is that I taught my boys to identify the resources around them and go out, seek them and bring them into their lives to make things better. And you've talked about in the book and here today, the stigma that's attached to seeking the kind of care that these athletes need. And I know as a father, as I've just described to you, I've really focused on that self-advocacy on their part. And I I think I know the answer to this question, but do you see that there's a shortage of access to these kinds of resources for athletes? Or do you think there's a shortage of advocacy on the part of others and self-advocacy for the athletes to tap into the resources that exist? Oh, Chad, there's more resources than is even needed. That's the God darn darn truth. You know, there's more resources out there, but we have the problem with athletes being completely concerned and overwhelmed with the fear that someone may find out that they're working with someone like me, a sports psychology coach. 
approach. You know, like, so we have the resources, but we have to get through that stigma. Now, speaking of stigma in 2020, the, the Baltimore, I'm sorry, the Indianapolis Colts <laughs> tells you a little bit about my age. Uh, the Indianapolis coach, um, you know, they, the team put together and the owners completely behind it in 2020 kicked the stigma of mental health. Now, they started the program in 2020, two nights ago on TV during a football game. They have new PSAs. The Indianapolis Colts are paying for their own PSAs, public service announcements, wow. saying kick the stigma. They've got these athletes up there, you know, with saying we are in overwhelm. I love that word, Chad, you yeah. know, because that really states the mental health status that we're in overwhelm. So yeah. football players, you have access through NFL to get mental health help. Now the NBA created NBAMindHealth.com. It is a website for NBA players and the world, of course, you know, but then we also have something that I want to talk about that I did not put in the book, Chad, about mentorship. Dadages exclusive. This is a dadages exclusive, exactly. And part of it is in the book and then the part isn't. So I write a story about meeting who I believe is one of the top underrated centers of all time in the NBA. He came in as a forward. He was forced at six foot 10 to be a center and he was a freaking rock star. And I'm talking about Moses Malone, of course. And you read my dedication of the book to him. I met Moses when he was like 17 and I was 15, you know, and I fell in love with the guy. As the story goes in the book, Dave Bing, the former Syracuse University, All-American, Detroit Piston, NBA player and Detroit mayor of Detroit. Dave Piston had a camp when I was 13, 14, 15 would go to. And one day this limousine pulls up and this really tall, very young, super skinny kid steps out with a torn, dirty white t-shirt, shorts held together with a safety pin, sneakers without enough laces to keep him on his feet. He was just dragging it behind him. And everyone in the camp is going, who is this getting out of a freaking limousine? You know, and seven o'clock that evening over the loudspeaker, you hear Dave Bing himself say, in 15 minutes, I am challenging Moses Malone on court one to a one-on-one -on -one playoff. And the place went nuts, right? So I, I won't tell the rest of the story what happened it's there. It's got with Moses. hype, as they say today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, you know? And it was incredible. And the fact that at 17, Moses Malone could even hold court with an NBA All-Pro, you knew he was special, right? And for people that don't know, who like basketball that don't know much about Moses Malone, one of his greatest games was 50 points and 30 rebounds in one freaking game. This is to yeah. tell you the power of this mother. Yeah. You know, two-time MVP champ. I mean, I could go on and on. Chad, I get so excited talking about Moses. Unfortunately, in 2015, he passed away in his sleep, you know. But let me tell you the next part that is not. This is the Dadages exclusive. So the other day, I'm watching Charles Barkley in an interview. And they say to him, because this is part of the mental health that the world of athletics needs. And they said, did you have a mentor when you came into the NBA? Did you have someone you looked up to? Did you have someone that helped you? And Charles Barkley had this big old beautiful smile. And he said, well, he said, yeah, I got a story that's going to kind of surprise you. And so the announcer goes, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I, I get drafted in the NBA and the first team I'm on, Moses Malone is on. And I am a huge fan of, Mo you know, this is Charles talking. I'm a huge fan of Moses Malone. And I go up to him and I introduce myself and he looks at me and he goes, you're fat, you're lazy, and you're never going to be an all-star. Lose 20 pounds. And he walks away. And Charles goes, this is the first time Mike I've ever met. Yeah. yeah, totally, Chad, right? And he just walks away. He doesn't say anything. So Charles Buckley's going, who the hell is this? You know, how is this yeah. welcoming me into the NBA, right? And so over time, Charles starts to think, okay, well, I can lose 20 pounds. And he lost 20 pounds. So he goes up to Moses and he says, well, he said, you know, I took your advice and I'm down to 270. Moses Malone looks at him and he goes, 
you're fat, you're lazy, you ain't going to make it in this league as an all-star. Lose another 20 pounds. And he walks away. And Charles Barkley is going, what is going on? You know, then Charles gets competitive, right? And he said, that's it. He goes, I'm going to do it. So he loses the 20 pounds. Now he's down to 250. And he walks in proud as hell to Moses Malone and says, there you got it. I'm at 250. Moses looks at him. He goes, you're too light to be an NBA all-star. Get up to 260 and stay there. (laughs) (laughs) And then Moses walks away and Charles goes, oh my gosh. And then Charles says this, the best advice that's ever been given to me was given to me by Moses Malone. Wow. He is the one that turned me into an NBA all-star. Chad, for our audience right now, you have a boss you can't stand. Take a step back. Maybe their criticism is well-directed and maybe they're right. You have a partner that's trying to take a stand. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. But at least we have to say maybe they're right. And that's what I respect about Charles Barkley so much. You know, he was mad. He was hurt. He was upset. But he did it anyway. That's a leader. That's why Charles Barkley has the following he still has today. You know, he's got a great personality. A lot of people don't like him. I think he's funnier than heck. I think he's also one of the most honest of all analysts. You know, he doesn't pull punches. He may not always be correct in a lot of people's minds, but he speaks what he believes is the truth. And the story I just shared with you, when he was willing to say that on national television, you know, I have so much respect for Charles Barkley. For every athlete or every elite college athlete, you need a mentor or more than one. You know, I fill a role as a mentor in the world of the mental skills and some of the physical skills practices, the philosophy practices, the spiritual practices, the relationship healing practices, you know, uh, the confidence. I mean, that, that's in sports psychology. We deal with everything. You know, in, in my case, it's a little different because as a counselor also, we do go into helping deal with children and deal with, you know, partners when you're on the road that much and, and all of those kind of things. We also help, you know, and, and if you think about this, there's a lot of times that players will hold huge resentments against teams that trade them. They'll hold huge resentments against being now the sixth man or the seventh man or the eighth versus a starter. And then let me tell you again, role models. And I'm just going to go to the NBA. Kyle Lowry, starting guard for Miami Heat. We go into the playoffs. He's not the starting guard anymore. He comes off the bench as a maniac. He does not allow this. This is a leader. Russell Westbrook. Oh my God. One of the most amazing individuals that has ever stepped on the court. And if all you have to do is, if you don't agree with me, if you don't like him, I don't care. Look at his numbers. You cannot argue with numbers. You cannot touch his numbers. He's amazing. He went to to come off the bench for the Lakers. He came off the bench like a mad animal. Yeah, that guy yeah. is, see, these these are the leaders. Now, your son has the opportunity with you as a dad to understand these principles, you know. For everyone else out there, you cannot rely on your athletic ability. It's not enough. It never would be enough. You've got to have it all together mentally, spiritually, physically, even financially. You know, I tell stories about Ernest Graham, one of my, my favorite stories in the book about an athlete that does it so differently. And last night on uh, social media, J.R. Smith, a former NBA all-star talked about how he screwed up his life by never paying attention to spending habits while he was an NBA star. And he's suffering now financially because of that, right? So we work with athletes to make sure, now we don't tell them where to invest their money, but we do help them with the budgeting point of view. Then let me jump back to Ernest Graham. The first time I interviewed Ernest Graham, he was an All-American running back at the University of Florida. Then he went on to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I say to him, what's one of the coolest things that you did in the NFL that's different than anyone else? And he said, 
sat there for a second. And he looks at me and he goes, well, he said, I took my, my signing bonus and I invested it. <laughs> I said, you did what? He goes, oh yeah. He said, I was, I was ready from the, the, the get go. He goes, and then shortly after that, I opened an insurance company while I was in the NFL so wow. that I knew if my days were shortened, I was going right into a business, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and that kind of, le that's a leader, right? That's, yeah. that's a leader, yeah. but you've got guys coming in and getting sinus bonuses of millions of dollars. And within a couple of years, because of injuries or trades, or they don't perform at the level they thought, and they've spent that money, you know, the, the average age of a professional or number of years of a professional athlete could be three to four years of playing time, the average, you know, at a very high level. Of and then course. of course you got the freaks like Tom Brady and LeBron James that go for you know, 300 years, they're like Moses, for God's sake, still playing sports and you just can't even believe it. They, they put their walkers on their seat and they get out on the court and the adrenaline takes over. But, you know, we need these leaders and that's what the book is about, you know, lifting yeah, the yeah. world up to understand what does a leader look like? How do we face our challenges? God, Chad, and, and I know that I'm going off here because I get so excited talking about this stuff, but, you know, right we have this that. program in the book that we teach people, you know, how to do sizzle reels with, with their hottest days, their hottest and then we say, you've got to also do a sizzle reel with your worst day because your good stuff, your strengths is not your problem. This video over here, a sizzle reel with your crap is your problem. And let's clean this one up. And that is a powerful exercise we ask all of them to go through. Yeah, I like that theme. And I like how it runs through the narrative of all these goats that you're talking about from Moses Malone to Charles Barkley to LeBron James to Djokovic and some of the great coaching leaders as well, like Phil Jackson, the Zen master of the NBA. And really what I'm hearing as a consistent theme is the importance of adversity and how you process and respond to adversity, whether it's on the court or in your life outside the, the sport. You've told narratives and the common theme is that even like Charles Barkley, the adversity he faced was the criticism from Moses Malone. And instead of saying, gosh, this guy's a jerk and I'm not going to listen to a thing he has to say and dismissing him, he really took it to heart and said, what can I do? What, is, how, what does this say about me and what can I I do to be better and really internalize that and focused on it. And I think that that processing and handling of adversity is such a key feature of success in any walk of life. And one of the people that my son, Braden has had the opportunity to engage with that has had a great impact on him is John Beck, who is a quarterback coach, but he's way beyond a quarterback coach. He's really a sports psychologist and has done great work with some amazing NFL quarterbacks like das Dak Prescott and others. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I love that John Beck says, it's directly in line with what you said. He says that adversity is not just an important part in the process of becoming a quarterback. Adversity is an absolute necessity in becoming a quarterback. Because if you don't face adversity, process it, handle it, and surpass it, you're not prepared to be a leader at that level on a sports field. And I think that theme is consistent behind everything that you're saying. And I love that so much. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Chad, because there's multiple ways to face adversity. You know, we have to respect different personalities. Some people get really quiet, right? They'll go within, they'll get a, a guide, they'll get a mentor, they'll get someone and it's going to be very privately done and not too many people are going to know about it, right? The adversity they're going to deal with on their own. Yeah. Um, others run away from it and they don't want to face it. So they'll focus on their strengths again, right? They'll, they'll just continue to look at, yeah, but I do this really well. And they won't look at that missing piece. As a matter of fact, I'll tell another basketball story from the book, Duncan Robinson with the Miami Heat last year. In three years, Chad, he became the 
the number one most prolific three-point shooter in Miami Heat history. Now, that's going back to 1988 is when the Heat were formed. Wow. In three years, he became the most prolific three-point shooter the Miami Heat ever had. They had Ray Allen for a couple seasons, if you remember that. They had course, uh, yeah. Dwayne Wade. I mean, they've had some incredible three-point shooters, right? Um, who is the guy they call the golden arm uh, from North Carolina? They've had all these. And in three years, this freaking dude wipes all these records out. But wait a second. We go into the playoffs last year, and after the first round, Duncan Robinson is not seen. He's not getting into any games. Now, during the season, he was relied upon heavily. Now, we also have to remember, Tyler Hero was out. He was right. hurt. So here's their other top three-point shooter, and Duncan Robinson is getting no playing time. And we're going, what the heck's going on? Or, or you know, Coach Bolster will put him in for two or three minutes, and he yanks him immediately. Then we get to the end of the Boston series. Now, I don't know, and I'm going to send this book to Duncan because I write this story, and I'm going to ask him what happened. But I say in the book, one of two things happened. Either Duncan Robinson saw what he was avoiding doing to get him more playing time, or one of the coaches finally got into his head or a player got into his head and said, if you don't start doing this, you ain't ever getting back in. Yeah. And what was starting to do this, it was cutting without the ball. Uh -huh. He was a stand-up three-point shooter. He started cutting. And, and as I, I get excited, as I say in the book, it was all of a sudden Duncan Robinson, another layup. Duncan Robinson, another layup. We hadn't seen Duncan Robinson do layups all season long. All of a sudden, he's getting made major minutes in the Denver playoffs, you know, the, 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 the final NBA finals, yes. Duncan Robinson comes back and he just kicks, but the adversity he faced was sitting on the bench when yeah. he's heralded. Can you imagine that mentally? You're heralded as the most incredible three-point shooter ever with the Miami Heat basketball team, and you're in the playoffs and you're on the bench. I mean, that would screw with most people's heads, yeah. and it did screw with his until somehow the lock turned the key, or the key turned the lock, opened it up, and he went on. Off. I love this these, stuff. Yeah, yeah. These key moments that you're talking about are so pressure packed and they can be so impactful. And it adages friends and family to take the pressure off of us because this interview with David Essel is so impactful. We're going to hit pause here for today. Please join us for the next episode of Dadages, where we will pick up right here with David and provide the exciting conclusion to this powerful episode of Dadages. Hit subscribe right now so you don't miss it. We look forward to connecting with you next time. And remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like it.